as Saul sinks deeper and deeper into the darkness of his madness, David is now put in mortal danger. This is the 40th sermon in the series Dynasty, Lordship and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. A roll covenant reading coming from the first book of Samuel, Samuel in chapter 18, beginning in verse 12 through the end of the chapter, verse 30. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and was departed from Saul. Therefore, Saul removed him from him and made him his captain over a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. And David behaved himself wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Wherefore, when Saul saw that he behaved himself very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, because he went out and came in before them. And Saul said to David, Behold, my elder daughter Mirab, her will I give thee to wife. Only be thou valiant for me, and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul said, Let not mine hand be upon him, but let the hand of the Philistines be upon him. And David said unto Saul, Who am I? And what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? But it came to pass at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given unto Adriel, the Meholathite, to wife. And Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And Saul said, I will give him her, that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Wherefore Saul said to David, Thou shalt this day be my son-in-law, in the one of the twain. And Saul commanded his servant, saying, Commune with David secretly, and say, Behold, the king hath delight in thee, and all his servants love thee. Now therefore be the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spake those words in the ears of David, and David said, Seemeth it to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law, seeing that I am a poor man and lightly esteemed? And the servants of Saul told him, saying, On this manner spake David. And Saul said, Thus shall he say to David, The king desireth not any dowry, but in hundred foreskins of the Philistines to be avenged of the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. And the days were not expired. Wherefore David arose and went, he and his men, and slew of the Philistines two hundred men. And David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full tale to the king, that he might be the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him Michal, his daughter, to wife. And Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was yet the more afraid of David. And Saul became David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines went forth, and it came to pass, after they went forth, that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was much set by. The evangelist Matthew writes to us in Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 17 through 19, by the same Spirit, the Lord Jesus speaking. Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out in the drop? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, 
fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. How quickly do things get turned all by themselves upside down? At one point in the not-so-distant past, David was Saul's champion. Saul's champion against Goliath, Saul's champion against the Philistines. But now after David's victories and praises from the people, Saul becomes deeply troubled. In his narcissistic, tyrannical pride, the egomaniac Saul cannot at this point stand to see someone else get any praise or credit for doing something noble, especially in the advancement of God's kingdom. So as a result, Saul's pride turns into murderous intent. All this was a consequence of the removal of God's presence from him. Here we have a picture of a wicked man whose soul had been completely darkened by his own reprobation, walking daily throughout his royal house, brooding with killer instinct, a killer spear in his hand, ready to strike David at a moment's notice whenever the opportunity presented itself. Here's a man bent on murder and mayhem against God's anointed, against an innocent man. And in his extreme hatred against David, Saul seeks to kill him. Not once, but twice. And twice, by the grace of God, David avoids Saul's attempts. We see this in verse 2, And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. But here's the key portion of that verse, and was departed from Saul. See, once Saul noted that God was with David and not with him, he began to fear David. The literal Hebrew here says that Saul dreaded the face of David because in the face of David he saw the Lord. In the face of David, he saw a righteous man. And this greatly troubled him. Part of Saul's hatred was due to the fact that not only had the Lord departed from him, but God was mightily with David. And whenever he looked upon David, here he saw a righteous man. If you remember, Saul's real problem was that he was afraid of losing his kingdom. His initial problem was that he mistakenly thought that the kingdom was the kingdom of Saul and not the kingdom of God. And sometimes we think that too as we look at our families, as we look at our church, as we look at what's, what's called our ministry. It's not our ministry. It's not our church. It's not our family. We are mere stewards of God's stewardship. But Saul thought that these things were his. What he further failed to understand was that in order to maintain his royal position... He had to do one thing, one thing only. To maintain anyone's position in good favor with God, they have to do one thing. Obey. Saul needed only to obey the word of God as an obedient servant, yet that is the one thing that Saul refused to do. He refused to obey the word of the Lord. And the only way to hold on to his kingdom was to obey God. Now Saul's problem is the same problem that so many have today in the modern church. Saul wanted God and all of the blessings of God. He wanted the blessing of God. He wanted the favor of God. He wanted God to do this and to that and do the other thing. But, but so many today, like Saul, they want God, 
but they do not want what God commands. Furthermore, Saul refused to accept the will of God concerning his removal from being king. Remember, he was told in no uncertain terms that he was going to be removed and he could not bear with the will of God. For Saul, it was not thy will be done, it was my will be done. And consequently, in order to hold on to his title, the one that was standing in the way of that title, in the way of that wicked dynasty that he sought to to establish through Jonathan for the Benjamites, he sought to take David's life. So in his wickedness, even though he knew that God was with David, he still tried to kill him. And that, in and of itself, to go against the will of God, to go against the ordination of God, is in itself the epitome of insanity. Saul, at this point, was absolutely beside himself mad. So the question is this. Why would Saul still try to kill David if he knew that the Lord was with him? And again, the answer is painfully simple. He thought that he was as God. He thought that he could outsmart God. He thought that he could frustrate God. He thought that he was wiser than God. He could outsmart God, outfox God, because he thought he was as God. That, too, is insane thinking. He would do anything. He would think anything. He would scheme anything to hold on to his position as king, even if it meant killing God's anointed. Note the deviousness of Saul. As a result of Saul's fear, his his trembling, he sends David away and makes him captain over a thousand soldiers of his army. So at this point, since he fails twice to assassinate David by throwing the spear at him and then David escaping, perhaps Saul now is going to reconsider his, his strategy. He couldn't kill David outright. Maybe there's now a time to reconsider if by his own hand, the method of killing David by his own hand would then perhaps, maybe this was the thinking of Saul, the people might rebel. You remember, the people loved him. The people loved David. So if Saul would kill David, the people might rebel against Saul. So now he's reconsidering his methods. Saul would lose favor with the people if he killed, if he murdered in cold blood David, especially for no other reason than pride and his fear of losing the kingdom. Therefore, verse 13, Saul removed him from him and made him captain over a thousand as he went out and came in before the people. Now, this was not a promotion. Now, maybe David thought that this was because David was thinking only good things. Maybe the people thought that this was a good thing as well. Oh, look at this. David got a promotion. But that was not Saul's intention. It was not a promotion, but rather a cunning plan to have David killed without having it tied to Saul. If David was the captain over Saul's army, he would be forced to fight against the Philistines. And knowing David's passion as he remembered David running headlong to meet the giant with only a sling and a stone, remembering David's passion for the kingdom, advancing the kingdom, and always being on the front lines of every battle. This was a perfect plan. He knew that David would go out passionately for the honor of God. So then, therefore, putting him in the army, hoped that David would get caught up in the battle, and killed. And that would, of course, rid Saul of his adversary forever without ever having to lay a hand upon him. 
The Reverend Phillips observes, he says, the most important thing to realize about Saul is that he is an advanced and concentrated portrait of a man in rebellion to God. Saul is just like people today who focus their resentment and frustration on other people when their real problem is God. Saul's true problem was not David's popularity, the foolish song of the women, or even the Philistines. Saul's problem was his hostile relationship with the Lord. That was his problem. Now what is so ironic about Saul's plan is that many years later, in order to hide his own sin, David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba, David sends her husband Uriah the Hittite into battle hoping that he would be killed by Israel's enemies. And of course from that point on, David's house was racked with terrible grief, much like Saul's as we shall see going forward. Walter Chantry comments, he says, God's words and acts cannot be denied and opposed without dire consequences to those who hate what the Lord has established. Yet in all of this, David, to his credit, remained in a cunning fashion and behaved himself, as the scripture says, wisely. Notice verse 14, And David behaved himself wisely in all of his ways, and the Lord was with him. Now to behave wisely is to be obedient to the commandments of God. To behave oneself wisely, what it means is to be obedient to the commandments of God. That's how we are wise. To be wise is to be obedient to the commandments of God and then acting upon those commandments. To behave foolishly is the opposite. It's to reject the commandments of God and act according to one's sinful, autonomous nature. And so there's a connection between behaving in a wise fashion or in a cunning fashion and God's presence. If you are behaving yourself obediently, cunningly, wisely, God promises His presence. Once you depart from obedience, once you depart from acting wisely according to the commandments of God, the presence of God is removed. Notice, David behaved himself wisely, not in one event, not in two events, not in one aspect of his life, not in his outward show, but it says in all of his ways, in his public life, in his private life, in his secret life, in all of his ways, in his outward expressions and his inward thoughts. In all of his ways, he was a man obedient. An example for us today. And so there is that connection. And so David behaves himself wisely in all of his ways. In everything he did, everything he said, everything he was. And again, we see the contrast between Adam and Christ as we see David is a type of Christ and Saul a type of Adam and the contrast between Saul and David and Adam and Christ. Adam behaved himself foolishly in seeking to be as God in his rebellion while Christ behaved himself wisely by being the obedient son to his God, his father in all of his ways. And when Adam sinned, he too, much like Saul, what happened when Adam sinned? He began to be afraid. Hearing the voice of God in the garden after he sinned, the scripture tells us that he was afraid. In Genesis 3, 8 and following, and they, 
Adam and Eve heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. You see, Saul's problem, Saul was afraid because he was spiritually naked. He looked upon David, he saw the face of God and he was afraid because the presence of God was removed from him. Moreover, in his spiritual nakedness, he was also void of the love of God. He no longer loved God. He loved himself more than he loved God. And the love of himself, his self-love, his narcissistic self-love, eclipsed whatever love he could have had toward God. Because if he would have had loved God, he would have kept his commandments. He would have honored him in all of his ways, as the Lord says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, of course, we know that we don't keep the commandments because we want to get to heaven. We know that we don't keep the commandments of God because we want to get saved. It is the result of the new birth. The love of God's law, the love of God's word, the love of God himself is a result. It's the natural outpouring of salvation, which is by grace alone, apart from any works of righteousness that we could do. But Saul did not love God. He loved himself. David's wisdom was due to one fact. He loved God and God was with him. God had called David, ordained him, gave him a decisive victory over Goliath and the Philistines. He promoted him into Saul's royal household and gave him tokens of the kingdom from Jonathan himself. When Jonathan removed his robes of royalty and gave them to David and his armor and his cloak and all of those things, he was saying, I know that Samuel has anointed you and God has chosen you and the dynasty does not belong to Saul nor does it belong to Jonathan, it belongs to David. So he strips himself and he gives the tokens of the kingdom to David. Now surely the Lord was with him and Saul knew it. And that was the reality that made Saul dread. Obviously Saul's plan for David's death at the hand of the enemies failed for he not only acted wisely and obedient before God, God was with him, God was going to give him the victory, he acted wisely on the field of battle so as not to be killed. You see, he had already proven himself a valiant warrior before and he continued to prove himself in the same way in various situations by the grace of God and this made Saul even more fearful than he was before. All of Saul's temptation to derail David failed in the same way that all of the temptations of the Pharisees, the lawyers, the scribes, that they, they, the temptation that they threw at Christ, all of those temptations failed. That they tried to trip him up. Why? Because Christ loved his father. He behaved himself therefore wisely in perfect obedience to God. Wherefore, verse 15, when Saul saw that he behaved himself wisely, he was afraid of him. He was terrified. And that is what the church should be before the wicked. When we speak... The pagans of the land should tremble. But that can only happen if we are obedient. If we are vocal and conspicuous in the world, 
not hiding our light under the bushel, but putting it upon the light of the candlestick, the top of the candlestick, a city on a hill, if we would only stand with God, they would fear us. We would not fear them. But what happens today? The church hides in the four walls, waiting for Jesus. They should tremble at the face of God when the church speaks. Notice verse 16. David is not only victorious, but he's a people's man. He's a man of the people. Notice he is saying to Saul, I'm, I'm a lowly person. I, my father is a poor man. I'm a poor servant. I don't belong in the king's house. He was a humble man. But in spite of that, because he was a people's man, but all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. Note the contrasting word, but. In other words, Saul hated David, but the people loved David. The people of Israel and Judah loved David. And that was another thorn in the side of Saul. He wanted to be loved. The question here is why? Okay, so why did Israel and Judah love David? Well, the scripture says that he went out and came in before the people. In other words, he very simply, he was a man of the people. But not only was he a man of the people, a regular guy, he was a man for the people. Saul, no. Saul was a man for himself. Saul was a man for his tribe. Saul was a man for the Benjamites. He didn't care about the people. He cared about his dynasty. But David was not that way. When God called Solomon to be king, he confessed that he too was ignorant of how to go out and come in among the people. We see this in 1 Kings 3, verse 7. And now, O Lord my God, Thou hast made Thy servant king instead of David my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. I don't know how to do this. I, I want to, I'm the king, but I need to be a man of the people. So being unskilled in leadership and, and social graces, perhaps Solomon asked God for help so that he might be a righteous king. That's what we need to pray for. We need God's help. We are not as, as skilled as we think we are. You know, we all, we all have a really good opinion of ourselves. But we are not as we think of ourselves. Because we want to think good of ourselves. We want God to groom us. And we don't always know how that grooming is going to take place. Maybe it's going to be through trials. Maybe it's going to be through tragedy. Maybe it's going to bring us into the depths of darkness. We don't know how God is going to groom us. And sometimes that's why we're so afraid to ask God to groom us. So what makes these men, David, Solomon, Samuel, all of the godly men, so attractive to the people? Well, God's grace of leadership abilities coupled with their humility. So what makes a leader a true God leader? Well, generally speaking, a leader is one who has a vision, a goal, and a purpose for those whom he leads. The CEO of any company leads his people toward either growing the company, redefining or reforming the company, or, or achieving a better bargaining position in the global marketplace for the company. Now, for the biblical leader, the biblical leader, however, has one goal, to advance the crown rights of King Jesus, to advance the kingdom of God. The biblical leader seeks to advance that vision, God's vision, through various strategies and tactics that apply to himself individually, his family, 
his church and the community around him through educational and evangelical methods. The biblical leader has only one result in which he focuses upon. He wants this result above anything else, total, comprehensive, and complete victory, where every knee then finally bows and where every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what we're looking for. Is that not what we're looking for? Is that not what we're looking for for our children? Or are we looking for our children so they could have a big career and make a lot of money? Because that's one of the problems with the Christian church today. They fail to recognize their reason for living. But not only does the biblical leader understand the evangelical aspect of his role, he is acutely aware of the eschatological importance and the eschatological implications of his role in that surrender is not an option. Mere survival is not an option. When the darkness and the tyranny comes upon the land and the church is being destroyed, survival is not what we seek. We seek to flourish in spite of the tyranny in spite of the darkness, cursing the darkness by shining a light. But the biblical leader understands something else. He understands that his leadership model must be contagious. He leads by example, so that throughout the next several generations, these goals can be accomplished. So what fathers are to impart to their children is that passionate leadership ideal. And that must be contagious. He also knows that his leadership time is limited. We only have a short time on the earth. And that we will only see a small part of the picture. We'll only be a small cog in the whole eschatological ramifications of God's kingdom. Therefore, time stewardship and time investment is critical. Now, knowing all of this, the biblical leader leads. No matter what the problems are, no matter what the difficulties are, no matter what the trials that befall him are, the biblical leader puts his mind on leading God's people, leading his family, leading that generation and the generation following and the generation following that to 10,000 generations. But there's another aspect of true biblical leadership. The true leader knows how to be led. He knows what it means to be under authority. He knows what it means to be tutored. He knows what it means to be educated. He knows what it means to be a disciple under someone who has had perfected that biblical leadership. Such were the disciples. They were taught by the most perfect biblical leader. And this is what equipped them to be leaders themselves as a result of their being led, as a result of their training. One final point. One final point on biblical leadership. Well, the biblical leader must be a scholar of the scriptures. And, and I, I think comment needs to be made as far as that statement is concerned. Too often Christians think if I have a basic knowledge of scripture, I'm good to go. I'm good. Yeah, man, I know it's grace alone, not, not the works of the law. I know Jesus is God. I know he's the you know, second person of the Trinity. I know there's three in one. And I know the one in the many. And I know all those theological things. I'm good to go. That's not enough. Because what it shows us, 
What it shows me and what it should show you and what it shows God is that you're really not passionate about digging into the Word of God, about being bathed by the Word of God. The Scripture says that we are to make our calling and election sure. And one of the ways that we make our calling and election sure is are we passionate to eat and drink of God's Word? So while the biblical leader must be a scholar of the Scriptures, being able to draw out concrete action strategies which move him and his team toward their kingdom purpose, they must exhibit a deep care for those whom they lead. We have to be compassionate. Biblical leadership demands that we lead as as loving fathers, loving mothers in the family. And this is one component that's missing. And if this is missing, the whole unravels. David was such a man of biblical leadership skills. He was a true biblical leader. And as long as he remained faithful, he remained steadfast. But sadly, as we shall see later on, once he departed from God, albeit for that briefest of, of a moment, it was just a moment, it was, it was, it was a fit and a, a time where he just lost his mind for a moment and he took what was not his lawfully. And it ruined his life and it ruined his family and it ruined the kingdom. And then his leadership became questionable. Now, seeing David's rise in popularity, Saul then hatches another devious plan. And Saul said to David, Behold, my elder daughter Mirab, her will I give thee to be wife, only be thou valiant for me, and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul said, Let not mine hand be upon him. Notice the chain of his methods. But let the hand of the Philistines be upon him. number of things here to be observed. First, thinking that David is like him. You see, this is, this is funny, because Saul thought David was like him. If I flatter David... He'll fall into that trap. So he offers his daughter. Secondly, Saul then lays a condition upon David that after the marriage, David is told to go into the battle. And this smacks of two problems. The first is Saul obviously wants David to be killed in the battle. He calls them, interestingly, these are the Lord's battles. You're doing the Lord's work. Marry my daughter and then go out in the battle hoping that David would think that this challenge was for the glory of God and not for the revenge of Saul. But the real devilish plan here is to have David violate God's commandments for a couple in the first year of marriage. They were not to go out to war. Deuteronomy 20, verse 7, when set forth the stipulations of warfare, Moses tells Israel, and what man is there that hath betrothed a wife and hath not taken her? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man take her. He was going to be betrothed to Merib. So not only does he want David killed, he wants David to violate the commandments of God and then be killed. And this was the most devilish plot. Now what's most disturbing here is the idea that Saul most likely knew of this verse. He probably knew of the law of God. If he was king, he would have been forced, not that it made any difference, to write out the law of God. That was what the kings were supposed to do. According to Moses, write out the law. So he must have wrote that part out, knew what that said, He didn't really care. Now, if Saul's plot was successful, and this is where wickedness is systemic, not only would it have destroyed David, but his Saul's daughter would have been affected as well. Mirab would have been affected as well. Furthermore, if there were any children from that from that union, uh, if there ever was, then they would be affected too. And this shows how desperate the man was. He was willing to sacrifice anyone and everyone just to get his way. The Reverend Richard Phillips observes, he says, at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel the Meholathite for a wife, 
And it is significant, as a side note, that the five sons of this union were all put to death in later years as payment for Saul's sins. See this, how it's systemic against the Gibeonites according to 2 Samuel 21. A detail providing more evidence of God's curse that lay upon Saul and his family. So it's not just that you sin. If you want to go and sin, you've got to remember that it affects other people. So at this point, Saul is well advanced in his depravity. And everything from here forward, here on forward, is counterproductive. But what Saul didn't anticipate is the humility of the young warrior. And David says, I, I can't, I can't do this. I can't be son-in-law to the king. And again, this, this shows David's humility. He was not a nobleman's son. He was a humble son of the man Jesse, a humble poor man. We also learn that David's goal was never to marry the daughter of a king in order to better himself socially. The killing of Goliath was not so that he would gain the hand of the king's daughter and get, get some heroic title. David was a true man of God, wanting only to advance the glory of God. And to this end, David was well contented. Commentator Phillips again adds, he says, we look at David and see what it looks like to live in the blessing and favor of God. David's real victory was his humble confidence and delight in the Lord. A blessing God makes available to all those who trust in him. A blessing that God makes available to all those who trust in him. So having rejected Saul's offer, Saul then again shifts gears and Saul gives his daughter to another and then we are told that Michal loved David. Now having had his initial marriage plot to destroy David frustrated, Saul now hatches still another plan. He's going to give this woman to David so that didn't care whether Mikhail loved him or not, or David loved It wasn't about that. It was all about Saul, so that maybe she would be a snare. Commune with David secretly. And say, Behold, have delight in thee. Marry my daughter, so that she may be a snare, so that the hand of the Philistines may be against David. So they speak to David, and of course, David is convinced, not at first, but he says, I don't have a dowry. So, Saul says, no need for that. Setting the trap, he says that all you need to do is go out against the Philistines. Now, at this point, Saul knew that the hand of God was with David. He knew that the presence of God was with David. And whatever plan that Saul hatched, whatever plan that Saul had to advance in the killing and the slaughter of David would be not only found unsuccessful, but it would backfire. And this is what the wicked don't understand. They're hatching all of these plans, and this is what gives us great comfort. As we look in America today, all of the wicked hatching these plans, not only will they not be successful, they're going to backfire. God is with his people. And Saul felt as if I can now hatch a different plan and be successful. Now, either Saul didn't believe that God was with David, or he just didn't care. He was too bent upon murdering his adversary. Saul would, however, be snared in the very same net that he set for David. David, most likely remembering this event later on in his years as king, writes this in Psalm 9.15, he says, the heathen are sunk down in the pit that they made. In the net which they hid is their own foot taken. And so Saul offers Michal to David 
but with one very important distinction, not a dowry, not of money, but of blood. A dowry, not of money, but a dowry of blood. Saul knew that this was the hook that David needed. He knew the passion of the man. He knew that David, once he heard, you're going to go out and fight for the Lord's army. You're going to fight the, the wicked Philistines. He knew that David's ambition to kill the Philistines would drive him to accept. And so he tempts him with that challenge. He takes the passion of David for the Lord and he snares him with it. If not for this portion of the marriage bargain, I am not sure that David would accept the hand of Saul's daughter, Michal. But he knew that this was right. I have a chance to defend the honor of God. He was chafing at the bit. He couldn't wait for the chance to destroy the enemies of God. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law and the days were not expired. This is what was needed for David to be pleased with becoming the son-in-law of the king. A hundred Philistine forestins was the bride price. David, and of course David, knowing the character of David and the passion of David, David was really up for the challenge. In fact, he couldn't wait. And now this was, was quite a request, of course. A hundred foreskins of a hundred, not just men, the Philistines were giant men. They were big men, maybe not as big as Goliath, but they were big men. They were very strong, very skilled in warfare. To kill them and cut off their foreskins and bring them to Saul, that was quite a request. Almost, in Saul's mind, impossible. Obviously, he's going to be killed trying to get this done, and I'll be successful. Now, what we see here is a commandment, interestingly enough, to actually circumcise 100 men of the pagan army of the pagans, of these Philistines, who had a disdain for any ceremonial observances that Israel practiced. Do you think that the other part of the army, there's not just a hundred Philistines in the army, but there was more than just a hundred men. David only had to get a hundred. Do you think that they were going to stand by and watch David circumcise these men in the Israelite ceremonial fashion? Saul said, I've got them now. How many times has the pagan of this land, the pagans of every nation that hate God and His church said, I got them now. Close the churches, I got them now. But David was more cunning than Saul even realized. Now to be sure, circumcision was a mark which the Philistines hated. They wanted nothing to do with the God of the Hebrews, so to have that outward mark of circumcision placed upon a hundred of their men was incredibly humiliating and they would do everything and anything to keep that from happening. So, do you hear David saying, wait a minute, Saul, Ah, that's a tough one. Can we renegotiate this quest? Wasting no time, David goes out to meet face to face with the Philistines. Wherefore David arose and went, he and his men, and slew of the Philistines, the scripture says here, 200 men. We'll look at that in a moment. And David brought their foreskins and gave them in full tale to the king, that he might be the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him Michal, his daughter, to wife. Now, the KJV here seems to indicate that David slew 200 and not 100. The problem with this is that the very same Hebrew word for 100 is used for the word 200 
So it seems as if David did not slay 200, but 100. Now, if he slew 200, well, more power to him. But the Hebrew seems to indicate it was 100. So while the translators sought to translate that word differently, we, we don't know. The point of fact is this. He wasted no time. And so according to the original Hebrew, David fulfills Saul's request and gains Michal's hand in marriage. Saul was hoping, of course, that during this quest he'd be killed. Now, if Saul at this point had any doubt whatsoever that the Lord was with David, now there was no question whatsoever. God was with David. And because of this, the shepherd young man was invincible. God's people, when God is with them, are invincible and there's a lesson there to be learned. Now this caused even greater consternation and fear to Saul, which added to his sinful insanity. Notice, and Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was yet the more afraid of David and Saul became David's enemy continually. The exploits of David against the Philistines obviously enraged the Philistines to the point where they set up another campaign against Israel. Then the princes of the Philistines, verse 30, went forth and it came to pass after they went forth that David behaved himself even more wisely than all the servants of Saul so that his name was much set by. David is just waiting for opportunity after opportunity to meet the enemy head on. And this gave David further opportunity to even act more cunning. And as a result, for his passion, notice, as a result, for his passion, he became a household word. The hero of Israel, the victorious conqueror of Goliath for the liberation of the Hebrew people. Not being able to contain himself any longer and seeing no fruit from his scheming, Saul gets to the point and openly even asks Jonathan. How insane is that? Your own son who you tried to kill, who you know has made a covenant with David, you go and ask Jonathan and his servants to assassinate the hero of Israel, David, the future king. We shall explore that next when we return to our series in First Samuel, this we shall do, God helping us, unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.